You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The history of legendary choreographer Alvin Ailey is captured in the new documentary, Ailey. In this episode, director Jamila Wignot and one of Ailey's former principal dancers, Sylvia Waters, joins Washington Post Live to explore Ailey's legacy of telling the Black American story through dance. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Robin Gavon, senior critic at large for the Washington Post. And today we're discussing the new documentary, Ailey. It's about the life and legacy of the acclaimed choreographer, Alvin Ailey. And it is my pleasure to introduce Jamila Wignot and Sylvia Waters. Jamila is a film's director and Sylvia is a former principal dancer at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and artistic director emerita at Ailey 2. It is my pr uh, privilege to welcome you to the program. Thank you, Thank you for having me. Um, Jamila, I thought I would start with you with uh, the simple question of, um, you know, Mr. Ailey has been, um, has not been with us now for well over 30 years. Why did you decide that now was the time to look at his legacy? Um, you know, I think that it's always the time to look at Mr. Ailey's legacy, um, <laughs> his, the themes he, um, you know, his dance works, uh, deal with his life story, I think is evergreen and timeless. Um, but it happened that when we started the film in 2017, um, you know, the, the country <laughs> was undergoing, um, you know, some interesting, dilemmas. And I think the kind of vision and voice that he had um, is particularly important uh, to be paying attention to right now. Uh, we just saw uh, an image of him uh, in his younger years. And when he started the, the company, one of the things that he says in the film is that um, it's a universal company even though it is speaking from uh, a Black experience. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about um, how uh, important that positioning of the company was in, in the, the stories that he wanted to tell through dance. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a fascinating way of thinking about what we decide the standard the standard bearer of human stories are. I think when he founded the company in 1958 and as the company um, grew and evolved, uh, you know, it was obviously working against the idea of who should be on the stages of the world, what kinds of bodies should be on the stages of the world and what kinds of stories um, best uh, or settings were best for, you know, these universal human experiences. But I think, just as you said, it's rooted in a very um, specific tradition. And I think when we're talking about this, we're talking about his pieces like Blue Suite, like Revelations. Um, they're rooted in a very specific tradition. Um, but the the kind of uh, experiences and, and sort of narrative that's embodied in those things are fundamentally you know, human. It's stories of anguish. It's stories of struggle. It's, you know, I think about the duet, uh, Fix Me Jesus. This is, you know, it's a woman sort of grappling um, with a kind of anguish and need um, for some kind of support. So I think, you know, at the root of it, 
and you know his dances were getting at something very essential and i think that's why audiences respond to them so much and what i think is powerful is you know he's so ahead of the curve in that in 1958 saying no, you can come into this theater and you can live inside of my experience and then you can find yourself in this experience. You know, often it's the people of color or people on the margins. We're the ones sort of having to embody other realities and find our way to the universal meaning. And he's kind of inverting that um, in a very powerful way. Um, but I think that's that's why the dance works um, remain so, um, so beloved. Yeah, I've always been struck by the fact that um, the company was called uh, an American dance company as opposed to African-American dance company. Um, Sylvia, I, I would love to bring you into this uh, because I mean, you had the experience of working uh, alongside dancers like Alien, Dudley Williams and Judith Jamison. Um, what was that uh, experience like for you and what did it um, sort of teach you about um, dancing the American experience? Well, first of all, I was dancing with some of the greatest dancers on the planet at that time, which was a joy and an honor uh, to work with them. And Alvin, with his company, well, he was very eclectic too. He wanted to celebrate the African-American experience as well as the modern dance tradition. And he wanted his company to be a, a reflection of his audiences. And I think that's what people really tap into. You know, he wasn't uh, elitist about dance. He believed that dance, uh, as he always said, came from the people, should be given back to the people. He didn't consider it a high art. So we had many, many experiences uh, with this company in traveling all over the world, but also the universality of it was, it was uh, a mixed race company with uh, African-American, Hispanic, Asian. So you really felt that universality uh, in your in your midst. It, early on in the, the documentary, um, we learned that one of the motivating uh, sources for Ailey in going into dance was being able to see the ballet russe. And, you know, there is such an arm's length distance, I think, often between ballet and the audience. And that was a gap that Ailey really wanted to, to close. Um, I mean, and this is really for either of you, when uh, people talked about what it meant to see uh, people who looked like them dancing, um, when George Faison talks about uh, the, the understanding suddenly that, you know, a young black boy could dance. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it means to close that, that gap between the dancer and the audience? Um, I mean, the fact that you said that he didn't consider it a high art, I think really speaks to that. I think, Miss Waters, you should take this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, big, it's a big question. And it, it, it was a big job because it made me understand what Alvin finally said he wanted. He wanted, uh, he wanted the total dancing 
the dancer who would be proficient in all of these disciplines. Uh, in classical ballet, he believed that was a very, very essential discipline for a dancer. A dancer who was strong in the modern dance uh, uh, and also in the jazz. And he wanted to bring and fuse all of these together in one body. I mean, his choreography could be, like I said, very eclectic. And ironically, most of his commissions, I'd say all of them, were by ballet companies. Uh, so he wanted to bring all of this, uh, this dancer experience to the stories he wanted to tell. And he didn't always dance about just black themes. He, he, he didn't want to be pigeonholed in that way. He wanted to dance about anything. He, he was very poetic. He loved uh, working uh, with the music of Rafe Vaughn Williams and the Lark Ascending, which has an, a neoclassical feeling, uh, as well as Blue Suite. You would have them on the same program. So uh, it was always challenging and exciting to uh, do these works. Also, he, it wasn't a single choreographer company. He wanted his dancers to be prepared to work with all of these wonderful choreographers. He continued to invite over the years to set their works on his company. You know, that is the perfect lead into uh, a clip that we have from the documentary itself, uh, in which uh, Ailey talks about um, not wanting to be put into uh, a particular category, to be put into a, one particular bag. The problem is that if you're a black anything in this country, people want to put you into a bag. People sometimes say, well, you know, why is he doing that now? Why can't he stick to the blues and to the spirituals? I'm also a 20th century American, and I respond to Bach and Ellington and Benjamin Britten and Samuel Barber, and why shouldn't I? I mean, the things that he raises, the issue that he raises in that clip seems to be one that continues for a lot of for a lot of artists, particularly artists of, of color. I mean, have you, in, as, as you uh, talk to people uh, about uh, Ailey and what it was like working with him, I mean, many, how many of them really uh, spoke to that idea of fighting against being pigeonholed and wanting to underscore the universality of the experience? I mean, it certainly Rennie Harris does, yes? I mean, that's for you, Jamila. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think I'm glad that you bring this point up because I think it's, you know, when we say I'm a black artist, that just means I'm a black artist. It doesn't mean that I, that that then shapes or determines, you know, what my interests are going to be. Um, and I think that, you know, Mr. Ailey struggled with that in his own time, you know, as, as Miss Water was, was just saying, I think that's what's so amazing is that maybe he meets the audience where they expect him to be. So in a night you might see Blue Sweet, but then it'll be programmed with something like Lark Ascending. And he's, you know, he's, he's, he's opening his audience up to all the, 
the possibilities of dance and then all the possibilities of what kind of dancer gets to dance those kinds of dances, right? So um, I think he found ways to push against that, but certainly I think the expectation is, well, we don't need black artists to do those things because that's the realm of, of other kinds of artists. And what we need black artists for is to continue to work in these very specific traditions. Um, and and yeah, certainly um, I think that frustration was there and that frustration is, is you know, there for somebody like Rennie Harris, you know, as well. I, I mean, I can't really say it any better than Mr. Ely said it is himself. I loved that when I heard him express that, you know, but I'm also a 20th century American. It's like, or a 20th century person, you know, like why can't the world be open to me in the ways that it's open to everybody, everybody else. Um, but, but I think it's to his credit that he didn't, whatever the world's expectations were with him and whatever kind of challenge that was, he, he was pushing against those constraints um, all throughout, uh, you know, his, his leadership of the company. And one of the other aspects of that is that, you know, the idea that, you know, people didn't necessarily see Ailey, you know, marching uh, in civil rights protests and sort of being out there on the front line. And yet, um, you know, Ailey, uh, I believe it's uh, Rennie Harris who says that uh, the protest was in the work itself. Uh, the big statements were uh, in the work itself. I mean, can, can you speak to that a little bit, Sylvia, the idea that um, in addition to this being uh, uh, the beauty of movement, there was also an inherent uh, provocation in the work as well? Absolutely. I mean, he was very specific about his African-American heritage, and he was very, very affected by uh, social issues and injustices. Uh, in 1969, when he choreographed Masakela Langage to the music of Hugh Masakela, it was the same year that Fred Hampton, uh, the Black Panther, was killed at Point Black Range. And that gave Alvin even more fuel, more fodder to do this work. He said, you know, this could be in South Africa, this could be in South Chicago, it could be in Watts. So the atmosphere was very, very, very smoky and very, very um, uh, of that time and that anguish. So, okay, he wasn't marching, but he was doing it through his work. He was doing it on the stage is where his universe of social protests lived. I would say the same for certain other ballets that he did, but Masakela is the one uh, that stands out in my mind. It's very riveting, and to this day, it, it speaks to us. I mean, he always wanted to celebrate the beauty and the intelligence of Black people, but he, was a visionary. He, he believed in a world that spoke to many people and how they would see themselves in his ballets. I don't know and if, if I, I could just piggyback. Yes, please, Jamila. I just wanted to piggyback on that as well, because I think it's also this question of what we think 
it means to like, what does resistance look like? And I think, you know, in Masakela, we included it because it is his most political dance work. But I think, you know, for me, when I saw um, the company, Masakela wasn't on the program that I saw, um, but it was really this um, counter narrative, you know, to see just stories of everyday um, life in a way, or stories that were rooted in a kind of everyday life. So Blue Suite, to just root a story in a juke joint and say, look what's happening in here. To me, that was um, the kind of drama of that dance um, was an act of resistance because he was telling these very full human stories. And I wasn't seeing that, um, you know, in many other, any, many other forms of art at the time. Um, so to me, that kind of to to stage joy, to stage love, to stage triumph um, was also political. You know, red is political to me. Yeah, I mean, one of the the really powerful things about the documentary and also about his work is the emphasis on the the life that exists in between the protests, in between the struggles, in between the the point the periods of brutality. Um, the ability that the wonders of just simply living and enjoying life. Um, and I think uh, one of the, I mean, his greatest works, certainly uh, Revelation, um, which I, I think pretty much everyone on the planet has seen at least once, <laughs> uh, you know, does capture a lot of that, um, that joy and, and that history. Um, I would love to show a bit of the footage that we have of, of Revelation, uh, which uh, really captures, um, I think distills it uh, in a wonderful way. Alvin was an extraordinary dancer. He rippled through waiting in the water like a book, panther-like, mercurial, there are no words. I mean, it was pretty wonderful to, one, hear Judith Jamison's voice there and also to see Ailey himself dancing. Um, Sylvia, I, I'm curious, one, I mean, that uh, uh, piece is so synonymous with Ailey and as much as it is beloved, um, to what degree do you think it, it haunted him uh, in that it, you know, it was what he was known for and starting so early in his career? I think the 60s, yeah. Yeah, 50, yeah, 1960. Well, he, um, at a point, at a certain point, he would say that uh, Revelations was the albatross around his neck. And he even wanted to stop doing it, uh, stop performing it. He took it away from the second company. Uh, he said, after all, it's the signature piece of the first company. And, uh, but finally he came to terms with it. And I happened to hear him say it in an interview, well, audiences like it, the dancers like it, the presenters like it. 
And I have to admit, it is a good ballet. So he did come to terms with him, but it was always, I'm sure, uh, a struggle to feel that he had to top himself each time, that he had to surpass what revelations uh, had come to mean. That was very difficult. It was very difficult and at times very painful for him because each successive ballet, uh, he never knew if it was really accepted, if it was as really the ballet he wanted it to be, did it really resonate with the same passion and strength and beauty that uh, Revelations did? So it, it, was, it was a struggle, it was. But he learned to live with that and accept it. I mean, much of the film is, is narrated by uh, Ailey himself, but uh, choreographer Bill T. Jones um, uh, offers some really, I, I think, trenchant comments about what it means uh, to be the kind of success that Ailey was and what that, um, how that sort of creates this identity that is sort of publicly owned and is very separate from, you know, who you are in reality. Um, Jamila, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the comments that, uh, that Bill T. Jones makes. Um, and, and he really sort of cuts through a lot of the um, mythology around Ailey. Yeah, I think, you know, um, Bill T. Jones was, um, a, you know, he's he's a younger generation of dancer. He admired um, Mr. Ailey, certainly. He is in some ways in a, um, you know, I think occupies a similar potential space of being a Black choreographer running a company um, and understanding kind of the, the challenges around that. So, you know, what I think was interesting was that um, Bill T. Jones, in a way, kind of expanded upon what Mr. Ailey himself said um, in talking about this contrast between the life that Mr. Ailey came from, uh, these kind of extremely humble origins, and then the heights that he reached, and the kind of contrast of those two worlds can, I think, be very confusing. And then when you're asked to be the representative in a way, you know, that's just a, a heavy responsibility to have. Um, and I don't think it's something that Mr. Ailey was asking for. It, it's the outcome of a society, you know, in my view, it's the outcome of a society that that for too long said, oh, well, there we only need one. You know, it wasn't like, oh, well, wow, look at what this you know, Alvin Ailey choreographer has done and where let's open up the doors and let so many others, you know, come through. I think once it's what Bill T. Jones is saying is once there is an Alvin Ailey, there doesn't need to be another. Um, and I think that's that's an incredibly hard and unfair position to be in. What's amazing is that I think that Mr. Ailey was very savvy about that, which is why the company is not just you know, it does not only just dance his his works, but it dances the works of, you know, people from the past, Catherine Dunham, Pearl Primus, Anna Sokolo, you know, choreographers, he wants to he wants us to never forget the past. And then it also is an is a door that's open. He leveraged the platform he had to create space for younger choreographers to come in. So even Bill T. Jones benefits 
because when there's an opportunity for him to set a work on the company for a national television broadcast of dance, Mr. Ailey taps Bill T. Jones. So I think what's amazing is his ability to be generous in the confines of, of that kind of societal pressure. We, we only have a, a few minutes left, and I wanted to also bring up uh, a subject that is discussed in the documentary that also is so um, current, which is the topic of mental health. And, you know, it comes up in the context of um, Ailey and the, the, the separation between his private life and his public life but also the pressures of being seen as this exceptional talent and you know how that how that weighs on your soul and your spirit so yeah i mean what was it i mean you saw up close i think some of of that burden um what what was that like for mr ailey it was very very um it was very difficult for him. It was very humbling for him. You know, he was diagnosed as bipolar and that meant he had to be on lithium for the rest of his life. So it was, you know, the kind of um, strength he needed and support he needed from his Ailey family that, i.e. the dancers, his, you know, his mother, the administration. It was, a, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. But yet he, somehow he powered through. He continued to create. And that made him very happy that he continued to have uh, commissions from companies, that he continued to do new works that were very uh, well uh, accepted by audiences and the press. <clears throat> so that helped to alleviate those pressures that he, he lived with. Um, it was painful at times, but he powered through it. He did. Yeah, Jamila, I, when you look at the, the documentary now, you know, completed and, you know, out there for, for the public, I mean, did you have any sense of how prescient it was in a way in just really delving into uh, the question of mental health and the, 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 the burdens of the burdens of greatness, I should say? I think as we were, you know, we made this film over a period of five years. So um, that wasn't the intention. <laughs> it just took that long to, to do the, the hustle <laughs> to get the funds in place. As these um, things do. <laughs> right, as these things do. So um, I think over time, you know, that conversation was gathering steam. Um, and, and here, you know, we had an example of, you know, I think the price of excellence, I think something we all know in our community is this feeling of you have to be twice as good and you have to work twice as hard. Um, you know, mediocrity is in no way going to, you can't really fail up <laughs> as others might be able to. So, you know, I think that pressure of, you know, we love and celebrate Black excellence and we are inspired by these people as we should be, but I think it's important to think about um, 
you know, just they, at the end of the day, he was a human being um, and, you know, was, had all the vulnerabilities that all of us have. I mean, it was that vulnerability, I think, that made him so open and receptive and, and, and kind of fed the stories that he was telling. Um, but I think it's important to see that part of it as, as well. Um, and to see a conversation about, you know, it adds in a way to this conversation about where, you know, how can we be better about, you know, providing ourselves self-care or being more open about the ways that we're struggling? I don't think, you know, he didn't live at a time where there was that kind of openness. So we're fortunate to be living today where we can have these conversations. Um, but I just thought it was important, you know, that people see the kind of human side to the to the sort of mythical figure. Well, on that note, we are going to have to, I think, come to a close. We're out of time. And I do want to thank uh, both Sylvia Waters and Jamila Widnot for being with us this afternoon and talking about the new Alvin Ailey documentary, Ailey, which is in theaters now. Again, thank you both so much for joining me. And as always, uh, thank you all for watching Washington Post Live. If you are interested in more of our programming, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and get all the info. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.